Uh, first of all, to everybody here in this room, can I just say uh, I'm in awe of all of you, for, first and foremost, uh, for the sacrifices that you've made to this point and for the sacrifices that you will make on into the future for yourselves, for your families, for your communities and for your country. Uh, you know, that's what we're all put on this planet for. That's what we're all about. At the end of the day, we are, we're herd animals, just like horses. We need to be around other people. We need to support our herd to look after them and to protect them. That's exactly what all of you are wearing the green, the green uniforms for. So, first and foremost, uh, my, my heart goes out to all of you and the journey that you're about to embark on and the one that you've already been on to this point and trying to figure out what it is that you're going to do with your own lives. Uh, let me explain a little bit about to you and justify to you why I'm standing in front of you speaking to you aside from the video. I've run uh, the length of the world from North Pole through the South Pole. As it was mentioned, I was Parliamentary Secretary for Education, Science and Training in Federal Parliament. I was the Federal Member for MacArthur. I, I was um, a Federal Spokesperson for Western Sydney. I was um, Shadow Minister for Sport and Youth. Um, but above, above that, above my run for, through Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Palestine, above my work with North Force, above my work with, uh, with various agencies that I've been involved with, both government and civilian, above my work uh, in, uh, through Vietnam, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the peace treaty between both Australia and Vietnam for the International Red Cross, trying to bring clean water and clean sanitary conditions to that country by running the length of that country. Above my work with India, running the length of India from Kanyakumari through to Kashmir, a uh, distance of 4,790 kilometres from bottom to top uh, to raise funds for uh, girls' education in that country. Above my work in so many other fields and so many other different things, uh, the one thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that I'm a father of two, a father of two children and I'm a, a very proud patriot of this country. And I see part of being a patriot of this country is actually standing up and being counted when you need to be. At these point, this particular point in the world's history and in Australia's history, where a lot of people, particularly young people, are going through some of their darkest moments, uh, having trouble trying to get through their HSC, having trouble trying to have the opportunity to study, having the problems uh, trying to get a job, I'd just like to remind them, as I have done through various interviews that I've done, of people in other parts of the world that I've experienced where if you're in Colombia, certain parts of northern Colombia and certain parts of Asia that I've been to and East Timor and a few other places, uh, when the sun goes down at the night, there is no light. You can't read a book. You can't... You can't uh, turn on a light, you can't turn on a TV, you can't open up a computer, you can't take yourself away from that world, just sit outside and watch the stars, get some sleep until the sun comes up the next morning. Their window of opportunity is incredibly limited. Ours is not. Ours is not. I went to uh, um, Egypt and spent some time over in Egypt and I visited some people in a very, very poor community, Christian community, uh, out there in the desert. I saw some of the most absolutely poverty-stricken places and people I had ever seen in my life 
there in Egypt. And I'll never forget going out there to the desert. My job was to work with the International Red Cross and to hand out some food, a little Tupperware container about the size of a kid's, kindergarten kid's lunchbox that was supposed to do these families for a week. Uh, and uh, my job was to do that, to wash the hands, the feet and the faces of the children so that the doctors could examine them. Uh, and then I had the privilege of going back to some of these tin shanties that these people lived in overnight. And one of the things that stuck out in my mind was these kids all had burn marks all over their bodies, little infants with burn marks all over their bodies. And I couldn't understand why so many kids were burnt. And then I realised that they, they cook inside a little tin shed that they share with rats and anything else that's trying to survive the desert. And sometimes there is nine children and one mother that live in that little tin shed, no bigger than where we would keep our lawnmower. And these, these people, they cook, they cook on a little gas stove. And of course, you've got these little kids walking around in the darkness with a pot handle sticking over and they're heating up some water so that they can make a meal of, of porridge or of oats for their, their kids for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, and it's pitch black in there, and of course they're knocking these things over and they're getting bumped by them, and this is why so many of those children are burnt. This is just a normal life for those kids and those people in those places. I saw a woman there that was oozing, oozing uh, smoke and, um, and soot out of her ears and her nose, because her job was to collect the plastic that was collected by a fellow that had a donkey and a cart that would pick that up from Cairo, bring it out to the desert, dump all the rubbish there in the desert. And various people had different jobs. And this one girl's job was to collect the plastic. She had a great big brass ingot. And she would stick this, this, this stick into the, into the plastic when it was molten, when it was burning. And all of us have seen plastic when it burns. It's basically just petroleum. It's made out of petroleum and it gives off a black soot. And her job was to, once it started to get molten, lift it into this brass ingot. And when she filled up this great big brass ingot, she got paid two Egyptian dollars, or two Egyptian pounds, which was equivalent to 50 cents. And consequently, because she was breathing in all this black soot all the time, her eyes weeped a black soot, her ears weeped a black soot, her nose weeped a black soot. And this was her, her lot in life. This is what she had to deal with. I saw these little children, far younger than mine were at that point in time, little children, they would have been six or seven years old. Their job was to collect metal, collect metal. And on this one particular day when I was out there, they had just gotten a whole lot of rubbish from the local hospital in Cairo and brought it out to there. And there was a mound of it. And I saw these kids trying to take the needles out of syringes that had come from the hospitals with their bare hands, trying to pull them out. They didn't have pliers or anything. Trying to pull out the needles and break the needles out so that they could stack all that little bit of metal together so that they could get one Egyptian pound when they had collected a kilo of this steel. And they had all of these scars and they were bleeding in their fingers and their arms from pulling these needles out out of these syringes so that they could do that just to try and survive. And then I went around to a lot of the women that were there trying to learn how to read. And the saddest thing about that whole situation was because of the position that I held, 
I had dinner that night on this beautiful ferry on the Nile with the Minister for Health. And she, she tried to convince me that these people did not exist. She tried to convince me that they don't have poverty as such that I'd seen that particular day and every other day that I was there. She tried to convince me that they had the ballet, they had the pyramids, they had history, they had, they had everything. They were Egyptian. They were part of the creation of this life and its history and its culture. And she wouldn't, wouldn't believe that these people even existed. And I was trying to fathom how on earth a minister of that government could even think like that. And you know what I found out later on? Over in Egypt, you have to have an ID card. Okay, so to have, have an ID card to be registered as a human being in the country, you needed to have a birth certificate, which is fine. Many of the women couldn't get birth certificates because they couldn't read and they couldn't write. So often the husbands were nowhere to be seen or the fathers were nowhere to be seen. So it was up to the women to try and fill out a form to register their children. And because they couldn't read and because they couldn't write, they couldn't fill out something as basic as a form to get a birth certificate, to get a, an ID card, to get an opportunity to work. So they didn't even show up on the government's radar. They didn't exist as far as they were concerned. That's why they lived in shanties in the places where they were. So when any of us feel like we're poorly done by, like we're locked down, like we have to wear a damn mask or we have to put up with somebody yelling at us or we have to put up with this or we have to put up with that, just remind yourself of some of the stories I've told you here in relation to all of that and then you might start to realise how incredibly fortunate you are and how you have been assigned with the opportunity to make a difference to people not only in this country but indeed right around the world. That's one of the great things of wearing that uniform that you've got on at this point in time. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my life. Uh, I grew up, I was a motor mechanic by trade. I grew up, I was trying to get a job, could not get a job anywhere. Uh, I was one of seven kids and our family grew up out in Western Sydney. And I remember my father saying to me, uh, son, you're too dumb to go on at school. That was his words. You're too dumb to go on at school. Uh, you need to leave school and quite frankly we can't afford for you uh, um, to just to, you know to continue to go to school you've got to go out and get a job and I used to love working on my dad's old FC Holden and uh, cleaning out the dust out of the brake drums which you wouldn't dare do these days but anyway uh, because of the asbestos in there but anyway I used to love working on this car with my dad and working away on this car so he said he suggested me to become a motor mechanic a panel beater or a spray painter he said because you'll always have work or an auto electrician and um, <clears throat> so I went looking for a job and everywhere I went they said there was a lineup sometimes almost as long as 500 meters or a kilometer long of kids trying to get an apprenticeship uh, and uh, I couldn't get a job anywhere I went. Everywhere I went, they said to me, what experience do you have? I said, I'm 14 years old. They said, well, where's your school certificate? I said, I haven't got a school certificate. And they said, well, you know, sorry, we can't employ you. And I said, well, well what do I need to do to get employed? And they said, you need to have experience. I said, yeah, but if you won't give me a job, how do I get experience? They said, well, we're sorry, it's not our problem. So I went from place to place to place looking for a job. Finally, I rolled up this place and I wised up 
and I rolled up this place. This guy came out to me. He said, what do you want? I said, I said, before I said anything, he said, what do you want? Because if you're after a job, we got none. He said, I'm sick and tired of young people coming into this place. He said, they want to work in here. They want a job. They want to run the place on the first day. They want to do the least amount of work. They want to be paid the most amount of money. They want to work the least amount of hours. Blah, 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 blah. And he went on and on and on and on and on. And when he finally stopped, he said, so what do you want? I said, I'm not after a job. He goes, oh, mate, I'm so sorry. What can I do for you? I said, I said um, I'm after experience. He said, what? I said, I'm after experience. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I said, you're not giving anyone a job. Nobody's giving anyone a job at the moment. So I said, I made up my mind I don't want a job. What I want is experience. I said, I will work for you for three months for free. I'll do anything that you want. I'll get the lunches, I'll clean the floors, I'll clean the bathrooms, I'll clean the toilets, I'll, I'll, I'll paint the tyres on the cars, I'll clean the cars, I'll do anything that you want for three months. All I want in return is a piece of paper that says that I've got experience of working in a mechanical workshop for three months. He said, are you serious? You'll work for free? And I said, yes. He said, you'll start at 7am, you won't knock off until 5am? I said, yes. And you'll do that for nothing. He said, you'll clean the toilets, you do anything that I ask you to do. I said, yes. He said, all right, you got yourself a job. So I started with this guy and I started working away there. And I'll never forget one of the proudest moments of my life. This guy came up to me, Laurie Archer, and he said to me, he said, do you know what, Pat? He said, I've never seen anybody do the menial tasks of life. The simple things like cleaning the tools, cleaning the workshop floor, cleaning the toilets, getting the lunches. Cleaning the taxis, being polite to people. I've never seen anybody come in and do that sort of thing the way that you've done it. He said, and you ask for nothing in return. He said, if you want an apprenticeship, I'm more than happy to give you an apprenticeship. I would love for you to stay on. I went home that night and I told my mum and dad that I got an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic. It's one of the happiest days of my life. And I worked away as a motor mechanic, I got my qualification, and I'll never forget, it's amazing how things happen in your life. It almost happened on purpose, obviously they do, it's like fate. And so I'll never forget, I was there working away on a car, I was underneath this car and I was taking the diff out of the car, the rear end out of the car, and I slipped on the spanner, grease and oil in my hair, slipped on the spanner, took all the skin off the back of my knuckles, my knuckles were bleeding, I was cursing and swearing underneath the back of this car, my boss said to me, hey Pat, come out, come out of here, slide out here, have a look at this. I went out, I stood on the side of the road, Woodville Road at Granville, uh, and the western suburbs of Sydney, and I stood on the side of the road, and I saw all of these kids on the other side of the road, school kids, clapping and cheering and carrying on. I saw these balloons going up in the air. There was police vehicles going past with sirens on the roof. And as these vehicles went on down the road, I saw these runners coming out the back of there. And these runners, they looked like elite athletes. They had legs on them like racehorses. They looked fit and healthy and strong like Olympians, like Olympians. And as they ran on down the road, my boss said to me, he said, see that? He said, they're the Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon runners. He said, those guys will run day and night, night and day, day and night, night and day, day and night, night and day until they make it to Melbourne. They will run 1,000 kilometres until they make it to Melbourne. And he said, see that? 
you will never see a young person ever do anything like that. And I said, why? And he said, because young people don't have the ability to set their mind on a goal and work towards it, work towards it, work towards it, and work towards it until they achieve it. He said, they want everything to happen instantly. I'd heard this other bit before. You know, they want to be rich on the first day, they want to do the least amount of work, and they want to get paid the most amount of money. And he went on and on and on and on and on like that. That was his regular spiel. And I sort of agreed with him to a point. Then one guy came running past at the back of the field, and he didn't look like any Olympic athlete to me. It's this scrawny little old fellow in his 60s. His name was Cliff Young, and he ran from Sydney to Melbourne against some of the best runners in this country and later on some of the best runners in the world. And not only did he match it with them, but he beat them, he won the first Sydney to Melbourne race. I'll never forget the numbers of people that grew from being two or three people outside of a garage, clapping and cheering this little old man on, to being tens of thousands of people down in Doncaster in Victoria clapping and cheering this little old potato farmer on as he ran on into Doncaster in Victoria to the Westfield to finish the Westfield run at the end of 1,000 kilometres. And you know why that was so much of a phenomenon? Because often in this country we get so many athletes, we get so many people and we put them up on a pedestal and we grab them and we get people like Ian Thorpe. Have you all heard of Ian Thorpe, the swimmer? Yeah? You know? Yeah? Won a few gold medals in the Olympics back in 2000, did all right uh, for a little while after that as well. But I'm just using him as an example. They put him up on a, a pedestal and they go, well, that guy's great, you know. He's a fantastic athlete, but I could never be like that. Why not? Oh, he was born with size 11 feet. You know, he's born with paddles on the ends of his ankles. He's just, he must be genetically modified or something. His parents must have been good swimmers or he must have been this or must have been that or must have been whatever. We hear it all the time, don't we? As soon as you put somebody up on a pedestal, somebody else comes along and they make excuses why they're different to anybody else. And you know why they do that? Because it's too hard to try and emulate what they do. It's so much easier to tear them down or to make a point of difference and say, that's all right for them, but I'm different. I'm different, so I don't have to try. I don't have to try and be like them. So easy. But when Cliff Young, in his 60s, ran 1,000 kilometres from Sydney to Melbourne, while a whole lot of other people in their 30s, 40s, 50s were sitting on their ass waiting for their sons, their daughters or somebody else to pick them up and to take them to the shops because they were too overweight or they were too lazy to be able to get there themselves, or they were sitting around waiting for something good to happen to them, like winning the lottery or somebody to give them a job or somebody else to do something for them. Instead of that, you looked at Cliff Young and you thought to yourself, my God, if that little old guy can do that, why can't I? And I'll tell you something, that motor mechanic at that garage of Gramble thought exactly that. I saw the fanfare, I saw the prize, I saw everything that this man was. I didn't see how old he was. All I saw was that's something I want to be. And with that in mind, I went out there and I tried and I failed 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 and I tried and I, and I, and I, and I, and I succeeded. 
I went from knowing nothing about food, nutrition, exercise, through to being one of the elites in my, in, in my chosen field. I've travelled the world at somebody else's expense. I've spoken to your special forces on numerous occasions. I've spoken to kings and queens. I've, I got into politics not because I'm a great orator, not because I'm a great politician. I got into politics because I ran around Australia for our centenary of federation. I linked together our states and territories. I sowed together a seed of humanity for community after community after community after community. I taught a simple lesson that if one man can run around the whole of this country by simply putting one foot in front of the other and never giving up on that dream, never giving up on that goal, I, to I told them how, fortunately, how fortunate we all are in this country that we don't have different currencies from state to state, that we don't speak different languages from state to state, that we can freely travel within the country from state to state. This was back, this was back in the year 2000, right? The lead up to our centenary of federation. And I told everybody that simple message and I said, if one man can do this, by simply putting one foot in front of the other around the whole of this country. Imagine what we could all do if we worked together as one single unit. One single unit. And that was the message. After I completed that journey six months and ten days later, 14,500 kilometres, going through every state and territory of this country, including Tasmania, quick flight across to Tasmania, 80 kilometres a day every single day, no days off. After I completed that journey, I got a call from John Howard, the then Prime Minister of the country, and he said to me, Pat, I was wondering if I could have a conversation with you. Could you meet me for a cup of tea at Kirribilli House? I'll never forget that conversation. All I could think about during my time there was how I could sneak out the door with one of those cups and saucers. Had the little crest on the side of it. <laughs> I didn't, by the way. <laughs> But I'll never forget the conversation. He said to me, Pat, I was so impressed with what you did and the way that you did it, how you welded this country together with your footsteps and your words. He said, I was so impressed and I've received so much mail from the mayors of the towns around this country. He said, look, I don't know what side of politics you're on. I don't know whether you've even contemplated politics or not, but he said, if you would be prepared to run for us at the next federal election, I promise you my support and the support of the cabinet ministers to get things done for the people of your area. Little did I know that back then, for the Liberal Party, the seat of MacArthur was seen as unwinnable. Was, I had to win 14% just to get to zero and then try and build on that to try and win. Uh, and uh, it was seen as unwinnable for us at that point in time and taken in Campbelltown a lot of housing commission areas. And I'll, I'll never forget, I'll never forget, never forget, this is, this is not, I'm not trying to be political, but I'll just tell you the life of a, a young green politician. I'll never forget, uh, I remember John Howard uh, offering me that, that opportunity and I said yes. Uh, because I have a simple philosophy, my philosophy is, you have opportunities come along in your life, you either take them or you live on regret. And I've not succeeded at every single thing that I've ever done, but I've taken every opportunity that's been presented to me and I have no regrets, none at all, none at all. And so with that in mind, I took on this role. 
And I'll never forget, I was going to a place in Claymore in the western suburbs of Sydney, high concentration housing commission places. I went and knocked on this guy's door. And the dog was barking at me from behind the torn screen door. And uh, this guy came out, he said, what do you want? He was wearing a white singlet, pair of shorts, pair of thongs, great big overweight guy. He said, what do you want? I said, uh, I said, oh, sir, my name's Pat Farmer. I'm running for the seat of MacArthur at the next federal election at the end of the year. And he said, um, I, I, I said, I'd just like to give you my card. If there's anything I can do to help you, please let me know. If there's anything that you're passionate about that I need to raise, please let me know. He said, piss off. <laughs> piss off. He said, we don't vote for your kind around here. He said, get out of here. And I said, all right, sure, no problems. So I walked out, I walked down the, the stairs, I walked out the front, and I noticed the past pale on grass was up to my hips. Across the other side of the road from me was a burnout car, and there was a bridge that went over a canal there, and it was covered in graffiti. And I looked at this, and I looked back to this guy's housing commission home, and I grew up in housing commission house myself, and this place... The door was hanging off the hinges, the place was a mess. And I walked back in and I knocked on the door. The guy came to the screen door again he said, I thought I told you to piss off. And I said, you did. He said, you did, but I said, come here, come here for a minute. He stepped outside the door and he looked down at me, he said, what? And I said, have a look. What do you see? I said, what do you mean, what do I see? I said, look out there, I said, see that grass growing up? Since up around your hips. I said, do you think they'd allow that at Eskol Park or up at Eaglevale or they'd allow that over at Woodbine or any of the other areas around here? I said, just because you're, you're renting a place, just because you're in housing commission doesn't mean that you deserve to have a place like this. I said, and that burnout car across the road, how long has that been there? I said, it's rusty, how long has that been there? I said, it's been there for about a year. I said, is it your car? He said, no. I said, how do you let them dump a car outside of your home like that? And he goes, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I said, well, you can complain to your local member. So you can complain to the council about it. You can get it moved. This is your home. This is where you live. Have some respect. Other people should have some respect for you as well. He looked at me. He looked at the grass. He looked at his house. He looked at the door. He looked at the graffiti. He looked at the car. Put his arm around my shoulder, he said, give me one of those cards. Took the card, I don't know whether he voted for me or not. The bottom line was I got elected and I won that, that year by the second largest margin in the country and I went on to spend nine years in federal politics. Funniest thing about that whole scenario is that I also went on to become parliamentary secretary for education, science and training. That's second in charge for education, science and training. Not bad for a kid that left without his school certificate. So all I'm trying to say to all of you by, by telling you a little bit about my life is this. If you never ever give up on your dreams, if you believe in yourself when others doubt you, <coughs> excuse me, if you truly believe in your dreams and you, and you never give up on yourself when others around you doubt you, then you can be anything that you want to be. I have a simple saying and it's this. There is no force on this earth and none in hell greater than your will. 
If you want to do something, and I mean literally, if you want to do anything with all your heart, you can and you will find a way. You can and you will find a way. If you don't truly want to do it, you'll simply find an excuse. So my job here today, with all of you, is to remind you of that. To say to all of you, figure out what it is that you really want individually, with all your heart, and remember, no excuses. Thank you.